Testing, testing. Is my mic? Testing, testing. Got that. Keep testing. There we go. That's fine. Okay. Don't ask me to start singing. Nobody will come in. Keep going. Keep talking. I can keep talking. Is that about when you're preaching? Yeah, I'll talk like this. Okay. I'll, I'll put a little more energy into it when I'm okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Do I need to just leave it on then? I will. Well, after he announced that I was going to be speaking, I appreciate the rest of you staying. <laughs> that makes me feel better already. I do think I saw a few sneak out with the children, though, but that's okay. That's all right. I understand. Uh, I, being an old preacher, which I am, 50 years, this is actually my 50th year of preaching, and so it's been a long time, especially for a guy who only looks, what, 26, 27? But preached 58 years, unlike Gary, he kept his, you lose, you lose this, so I apologize for that. But I have to use an old preacher's story that a city had, had gotten together like they used to do, and they were going to have a Billy Graham crusade. They worked on it for months and months. They were going to have a big thing. They rented the big hall stadium, and they were just going to have a big Billy Graham crusade. And then they got word on the Saturday before it was begin that he couldn't talk. He had lost his voice, and he couldn't come, and he couldn't speak. So they called on somebody like me, some doofus, said, could you fit and go up there and, and fill his shoes? Well, he said, I'll try. And so he got up, began to speak, and he says, before I get started, I want to tell you a story. He said there was this little place in Missouri that grew the best strawberries. And because their strawberries were so renowned and so good, people came from all over to eat those strawberries. They had a festival. Thousands would come in and eat the strawberries. So they had the festival. Thousands of people gathered. The director of the whole event got up and said, glad to have you here. But we've got some bad news. And this sounds familiar. There's been too much rain in Missouri this year. We don't have strawberries. But don't worry, we got a lot of prunes. <laughs> so you're not getting strawberries this morning, you're getting the prunes. But I'll do my best. When I spoke here about three years ago, I talked about my story, which my story was about my divorce and remarriage and, and the process I had to go through in understanding how God's grace works in those kinds of messes. And so today, I wanted to take us through our story. And by our story, I'm talking about my wife and I. Kathy and I met 
in April at a divorce recovery seminar. We started dating. I was headed for ACU to get my master's degree, and we were in, living in Fort Worth, and so we were, I was going to have to relocate. And after we got serious, which was about the middle of May, I guess, and we were getting, it was clear we were going to connect and we were going to be together, we started talking about all of these things and how we're going to do it. She decided to move with me to Abilene after we got married. And there, in that situation, she would get a job, I'd go to school, the church I was with, praise them, they paid me while I was doing that, and then I was going to come back and be a family minister for them for at least five years. That was the contract we had. But now, there was a challenge in all of this, because Kathy had two children. Now, Jennifer is here today. She's the one with the, oh, she left with Sam, <laughs> the real hero of the family. He's, he, he's in with Lisa and her crowd back there. But we were, Jennifer was 12 years old, and she was one month from being 13 on the day we got married. And it, it, it was kind of a hard thing to imagine. What am I going to do? I've never had children. I'm going to have a 12-year-old daughter. And then my son, Jason, was eight, about eight and a half. And he was a typical eight-year-old. There was nothing strange about these kids. They were very normal children. What was strange and is that we were strangers. So let's go ahead and put that up if you can. We were strangers in all of this. And I really felt like the odd man out because they knew each other real well. Kathy had been single six years, and they had a routine at their house, and they had a way of doing things. Well, I've been alone for a year. I, all I did was sit in my living room and cry a lot. You know, that's all I did. And now I found a wonderful woman with two kids, but I was a stranger. I had to figure out how to make connections with these two younger people. And so we begin to talk through that. And I'll give you some information here just real quickly. If you're in an adoptive family or you're thinking about adopting or somebody has adopted you, there are a lot of great books. We read a couple of books by Vischer and Vischer. Emily Vischer was her name. I can't remember his name. But they were in a second marriage, and they both brought kids into that marriage. And they then began doing a lot of research on what happens in step families and how best to make them work. And so Kathy would read a chapter and mark it with her pink marker, and I would read the same chapter and mark it with my yellow marker, and then we'd sit down and talk about what the chapter said and what it meant to us. We did our homework. Now, that was good because we learned some things. And one of the things we learned was that in a, a good step family situation, the parents are everything. And what we learned, and that's the next slide, is that we need structure. So Kathy and I made some decisions after reading that book. One of those decisions was that I would never be alone in a room with my daughter, who was 12, going on 13 and fast moving into puberty. I would not be alone in a room with her unless she was fully clothed. Sounds like a smart rule, doesn't it? keeps me from doing something stupid. It keeps her safe from having somebody she barely knows do something stupid to her. So that was a rule we had. She was not allowed to come out into the living area unless she had her clothes on. 
And I certainly wasn't to go into her bedroom without knocking on the door, making sure she was fully clothed. But that was one hard, fast rule that we made. Another rule that we made, and this was for me and Kathy, we would neither one discipline the children alone. That kept me from being the wicked stepfather, if you've ever heard that phrase. I wasn't going to have the opportunity to haul off and slap one of them or spank one of them or discipline them on my own anger and my own way. We would take our time. Now, I'll tell you, if you're a parent, this is actually a, a great tool. And that is, if you really want your children to suffer, tell them, wait till your dad gets home. No matter what dad decides when he gets home, the three or four hours in between are murder. So we made the decision, we would always go back into our master, we would go to the master bedroom, we would shut the door, and we would discuss what do we do about this problem, whatever it was. Another part of our structure was that I never announced the results. I didn't have to be the bad guy. Kathy would go out and say, we have talked and we have decided and that's what we're going to do. Now that structure was really important to us because it allowed us to discipline the children and, and, and deal with the children and create a bond where the children were never afraid of me. I hope you weren't ever afraid of me, were you, Jennifer? Feel free to wave at me and tell me I'm lying to them, okay? Um, you know, she did me a favor this year. She lost all her hair. I finally had a child that looked like me. I'm thinking of having chemotherapy, see if it'll grow back on me too. I haven't decided. But we, I wasn't the villain. Kathy knows I'm the villain because Kathy's a sweetheart. If you know Kathy, she's as gentle and kind as she can be. But we would deliver it. And we also came up with one other system. And this is just for all of you, whether you got a step family or not. We would give them three choices of what they wanted to face as punishment. Oh, I love that part. Because to Jason, we would say you can do without television for a week. Or you can go out and do yard work for a week. Or we'd pick something else. Ch choose one. And he'd pick one. And after he picked it, he was, you know, halfway through that week without television, he's mumbling and grumbling because, you know, we're watching the football game and he can't. And I would just say, well, you should have picked the other one. You know, not my problem. You made this choice. That was the structure we created. Now, most of the time it worked quite well. And I'm not going to say my children were perfect. I'm not going to. Neither am I going <laughs> to show you all the dirt. I'm not going to bl blow the whistle on them, especially 20-something years down the road. I'm not going to do that. But the reality is this worked for us. Now, let me back off now and let you think about this for a second. From a spiritual standpoint, we were all one-time aliens, right? We didn't know God. We didn't understand God. Some of us had never really thought about God. We were strangers. And I know, because I came here almost four years ago to East Sunshine, I was a stranger. And if you ask my kids, they'll tell you there wasn't anybody stranger than him. But my point is, we were all strangers. And you know what we needed? We needed structure. 
That's what the church is all about. It's to create an environment where we can minister to one another, where we can help one another, where we can lift each other up, where we can pray for one another, when we can be there for one another. That's what a family is supposed to be, and that's what the church is supposed to be. And in a very real sense, we're kind of like a step family as a church, because none of us were raised in the same home, with the same parents, with the same values, with the same background, and boy, we experienced that in our home. I can remember sitting at the dinner table not long after we were married and, and Jennifer and Jason and Kathy got to giggling and laughing about that great trip they had taken to Colorado and how much fun they had and all I could sit there and say, I don't remember that. We had a breaking in period, a time of connecting and getting together. Now what I want to do is take us to Galatians. So let's go to Galatians chapter 3. I believe that's what we got up. Good deal. And I'm going to read off the screen because I'm not sure my Bible matches that one. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, verses 26 and 7 tell us how we get into the kingdom, faith and baptism and all that. But I really want you to focus on verse, back to verse 28, if you will, that in verse 28, he really nails down what the church is supposed to be. We're no longer divided by what I call cultural differences. Let me tell you a little bit about the Jews and the Greeks in the first century. The Jews considered everybody a Greek that wasn't Jewish. If you weren't Jewish, you were Greek. We call them Gentiles sometimes, but that was just the... the now, the Jews did business with Gentiles. They wouldn't go in a Gentile house. They wouldn't have dinner with a Gentile, but they would do business with them. Because they had to live in the community and had to feed their families and all the other things you got to do. But there was a strong cultural divide. And, and honestly, the, the Greeks that watched the Jews do all this separatist, they thought, what's wrong with those people? Now, Paul comes along and he says something that I think is as relevant as it could be for our time today. In the kingdom, there are no cultural differences. We're all one in Christ. Now, I can't hide the fact that I'm a 68-year-old white American. But that doesn't make me better or more important than a 20-year-old African-American. And if we're all in Christ, we're all one and we're all equal. And those cultural differences, we can honor them. In the sense that, okay, you were raised that way and I was raised this way. But in the kingdom, we all become one. We went through that as a step family. We had to learn how to be one. We had to learn each other's sense of humor. And if you ask my daughter, she'll tell you to this day, I got a strange sense of humor. If you've heard me teach in the fireside room, I got a strange sense of humor. I can find humor in almost anything. And, and that's not good when you're by the bedside of somebody who's in pain. But I can find humor in almost anything. 
We put the cultural differences aside. We don't let them dominate. And boy, let that sink in for a second. What impact would that have on our society if we could take that message to the world? Instead of picking at each other and blaming each other and arguing with each other. And you know, sadly, I've seen this stuff happen in churches. Now for me, the Great Awakening was about 10, 12 years ago. We had moved back to Texas. Kathy's parents were in her, their 90s and we were going to help them in, in their time of need. And so I needed a job. I found a job with a church in Grand Prairie. That's about 30 miles from where we were living. But they needed a preacher and I needed a job. So it all worked out. What I didn't know was that this church had formerly been a little white church. And what I mean is it was about 100 people, uh, 100 white folk, most of them without with my hairdo or Gary's, you know, gray-headed. And in all that process, they were in this little community surrounded by Hispanics and African Americans. A wonderful man, one of my best friends in the kingdom, James Williams, who was the kind of the preacher for a, a black congregation. They were looking for a place to meet, a new meeting place because they'd outgrown their old one. And he got to thinking, you know, the best place we can find is only a half a mile from a church that's already sitting there. So he, he met with the elders from the Freetown Road Church, and he said, how about we all just come in and place membership? That's what they did. You talk about eyes getting wide. And I'm really talking about the whites. Wow, look what's happened to our church. Because all of a sudden, the worship changed. We get one of our white song leaders up there. When we walk with the Lord. And then we get one of our black song leaders up there. And, and, and everybody's going, what's going on? What is it? How did we think? And then we had two or three of our African-American ladies who never bothered with notes. They went off on their own riff in every song. So you're sitting there singing a song you've sung a thousand times, and all of a sudden you hear some background. We had a lot of getting used to. And that was just one component, the music. And I, I could go down with many others. When I left Freetown and we moved up here, the component had changed. Many of our black families had moved on, and we, we had a black elder. We had two Hispanic elders. We had three Anglo elders in our congregation. The Hispanic group had grown to about 30 or 40 percent of our church because everywhere around us was Hispanic. Grand Prairie was about 70 percent Hispanic, and that, that was just what we had. But in the kingdom, those cultural differences should go away. It doesn't matter if you're black or you're white, if you're Native American, if you're Asian, it does not matter. We are one in Christ. That's what matters. Now take it to the next step in that there's no cultural differences. There's also, next slide, there we go, there's no social differences. Slave or Greek. There are no social differences. There's no caste system in the kingdom. Now, I know we tend to look up to our preachers and our elders, and, you know, 
feel free to do that. That's okay with me. But there's no caste system in the, in the church. The good ones, the not so good ones, the bad ones. We don't have that. That's not how we measure each other. We measure each other by a whole different standard. And if you go back to the, how we're saved by faith and baptism and so forth, we, we all got into the kingdom the same way, which is the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ is what I would call the great equalizer. We're just all one in Christ. And so social stuff doesn't matter. Okay, so you make $150,000 a year. That's good. Good for you. I make $150 a week. That's not so good for me. But in the kingdom, we're still the same. You drive a beat-up old Ford pickup that you bought back in 1988. Fine. Drive it. I drive a new car. Fine. Drive it. Doesn't make me better. Doesn't make me worse. All the things, and again, what a great message for our world today. Okay, you're a senator. So what? You're a human being. You're homeless. So what? Of all the things I love about this congregation is our ministry to the men every winter. I've volunteered two winters on that, but we weren't able to do it last winter. But, you know, I learned so much being in that ministry. One thing I learned, I can get up at 4.30. I wasn't sure I could do that anymore. But, man, I learned from the gentlemen who come into this facility to get warm and to get a good night's rest. And I find out, you know, they're really not hoodlums and they're really not bad. They're just in bad situations. There is no difference in social stuff. That we don't project all that. And let me, let me take you to the next one because I think this is the one that matters. There is no gender difference. Male or female. Now, this is the one that a lot of churches trip up on. But I will tell you, I've done I've, five different churches have hired me to preach for them, and I've worked for five different churches over the years, and I've probably preached in two or three hundred churches. I can tell you one thing that I know for certain. If anything gets done in a church of Jesus Christ, it's some woman somewhere doing it. Would we have... Half of what we have going on here without Karen Mizell, my goodness. Or without Elaine McDonald. How many other women are leading? Lisa Luter and others who are, are dynamic and powerful and persuasive in building up the body of Christ. I, I'm amazed at that. I love that. And what I really find refreshing and it shouldn't be surprising to me, but it is a little bit. I'm the preacher, you know. I've studied the scripture all my life. I know what I'm talking about. And then my wife will come up with something, and I thought, I never knew that. I just I didn't realize that was in there. Because when I read the scripture, I read it as a man. She reads it as a woman. And that brings balance to our relationship and opens my eyes to things I'd never seen, things I'd never experienced. There is no gender difference. We're equal in the eyes of God. 
So let's pick up our reading. Let's go on to chapter 4. Some of you thought I didn't preach long enough last time. I'm going to prove you wrong this time. <laughs> chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, what that basically means is talking about the culture of the time. If you were an heir, a son, a child of the parent, yeah, you were going to own everything, but not until dad said so. And when dad said so, you got your share there, and if you didn't, you didn't. Now, in the Roman culture, and, and, and some in the Greek culture, but primarily in the Roman culture, <laughs> the good old days of, of how this used to be done, they had a thing called the paterfamilia. Now, paterfamilia was the head of the family, the father of the family. And, and so the father of the family was the last, first, and only legal person to do anything for a child. Now, let me tell you what that means. If I got frustrated with my teenage son, Jason, which I did once or twice, as a Roman, I could take him out and kill him and leave him in the, in the gutter and go back in and never have anybody say a word about it because I was in charge of my house. That's why it's important to be an heir and to be a good son for another point. And really, that did happen quite a lot and in the Roman culture. That's how stern things could be. So as long as he's an heir, he, but when you're an underaged heir, you get nothing out of it. So let's keep, let's keep reading. I mean, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved. This before we became Christians. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, what's it say? Adoption as sons. Now remember, he's using the, the male here. I got that. But he's already settled the fact that there's no difference between men and women. So he's not favoring one or the other. There's no difference between men and women in the kingdom. So read that as gender neutral if you can. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, I want to I hit on that for a second. This, it's hard for us to grasp the word Abba. That's a Hebrew word. It's the word that Jesus used in his prayer in the garden when he said, Abba, take this cup from me. It's a term that you only use of personal endearment. I, you know, I, some people like to say it, it's kind of like calling him daddy. Well, that, that seems a little childish to me. But I can remember when I was four or five years old, my father was daddy, and it felt pretty good sitting in his lap. Just imagine sitting in the lap of God the Father and saying, Abba. Father. And brothers and sisters, we've been given that lap to sit in. We've got that in our, our hands right now. This is why adoption is such an important principle. 
Because when you get adopted, some things change. You get that intimacy with God that you wouldn't have otherwise. I would not have known Jennifer. I would not have known Jason. I would not have known my my son-in-law who's with us today or my grandson who I know is out there having a ball somewhere. I wouldn't have any of that if it hadn't been for adoption. I wouldn't have my relationship with God if he hadn't adopted me. And so now we finish our reading. So you're no longer a slave, but a son or a child of God. And that was a child, then an heir through God. That's really important. So let me, let me hit a couple of points here before I actually do run out of time. Point number one, now once you get the child, slave or free depends on the parent. Now here's, here's the process that we're going to go through. You can go to the next one. The parent adopts the child. That's what God's done. He's adopted us. The child becomes heir. We are heir to everything God has to offer. And I love that. And that brings us to the last. We are all heirs. Every one of us are enjoying the wonderful blessings God has promised to all of us. Oh, I know you have those days when you're down and you don't feel worthy and you don't feel good about yourself or you messed up. That's all a part of being alive in the world that we live in. Satan's working on us as hard as he can. And I tell you, if you're really good at being a Christian, if you're really good at serving God and being subservient to God and trying to do God's will, Satan's going to come at you that much harder. I, I, I hate to take you back to a team you may not like, but I, I used to watch the Dallas Cowboys all the time. They were my team. And when I was little, and by little I mean little, 10, 11, 12, there was a player named Bob Lilly. Bob Lilly was one of the all-time great defensive tackles in football. You know what the, the other team always did? They double-teamed him, and oftentimes they triple-teamed him. So here's my point. If you get really good at serving God, if you get really good at being more like Christ, don't expect Satan to let up. Expect him to double triple team you because that's what satan does we're all heirs now i say that because there's another aspect to that you can't look around this room and find somebody's not an heir of god we're all heirs if we're in christ we're all heirs now i i would like to be able to say i'm better than somebody else but i can't because i've got the same promises you've got you've got the same heir that I've got. Everything that God has, he's going to give to me. He's going to give to you. We're all going to share in that alike. And that brings me to my last point up there. We are all blood relatives. We are all blood relatives. Now, I know I passed over a slide earlier on. Don't ever tell me these aren't my kids. I'm, I'm, I didn't miss it on purpose. You see, you can't tell me Jennifer's not my daughter. You can't tell me Jason's not my son. And that has nothing to do with blood because there's none of my DNA in either one of them. But when you come to Jesus Christ, 
When you put him on and he becomes the ruler and master of your life, you join in a fellowship of people who are blood-related. And the blood that brings us together, Lord, is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that should excite us. You can look at the people you're sitting next to, the people are sitting around you, and you can say, you know, I don't know, but they're in the blood of Christ. They're my blood relative. And I don't know about you, but, you know, if my daughter needs something, if my son needs something, if, if my grandson needs something, he gets twice what everybody else gets, but if he needs something then that's what he's going to get because we're blood relatives even though there's no blood between us. Well, that should be the way the church functions. We're all blood relatives because of Jesus who shed his blood to make us a whole and a family. Don't look around the room and see differences. Don't look around the room and see strangers. Don't look around the room and, and think somebody's not deserving to be here. We are all heirs and we are all related by blood. And the blood is the blood of Jesus the Christ. Now, if you have any special needs, we have elders scattered around the room. You might know them, you might not. If we've got an elder, raise your hand just so somebody has a need they can come to you. And that's good enough. Just so somebody, if they need somebody to pray, to come, you can do that. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And at the end of that prayer, as we sing, if you need to speak with one of these gentlemen, go to them and seek the help that you need. But understand, in this body, you're a blood relative of everybody who's here. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your son, that in him we can all be equal, that our backgrounds don't matter, our culture doesn't matter, or gender doesn't matter. Father, we're just thankful that we can crawl into your lap and call you Abba, that we can trust you to take us into your arms, to make us safe, and to keep us saved. And we ask you, Father, that we will live as one of your children that we will be a part of this family and make it a stronger family to bring honor to your name. And it's through Jesus we pray and amen.